This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode is living proof that style doesn't have to come at the expense of substance. Uh, an interior and homewares designer by trade, uh, she prioritises fair trade in all its forms uh, in her business uh, and also gives back her profits, donating her funds and her time and energy to a variety of very worthy causes, many of them overseas. Uh, especially towards helping protect women and girls from the sex slave industry in India and Nepal. It sounds like a huge balancing act. So I'm looking forward to hearing all about uh, the life and times of our special guest in this episode, Melanie Strasty. Hello, Melanie. Welcome to the program. Hi, Tim. Thank you for having me. How do you balance it all? A lot of people (laughs) struggle to keep a business afloat. Uh, How do you manage to do that and do so much for all of these worthy causes? Well, I think you go slightly nuts, and there are many times where you only have a few hours sleep a night, but it's a joy, and to be honest, I don't really feel that I work. It's an obligation. We just keep going, keep going. We, we need it. You can't take time off because you're tired, because lives actually rely on us. You'd probably describe your, uh, your business more as a, as a social enterprise uh, than a business. Tell us what the difference is. Well, I run it as a business. The only difference is that I don't pay myself a wage. So my design fee and all the profit that we make from um, the sales of goods goes straight back to the artisans or, and the villages that they come from. Okay. Tell us about uh, your efforts overseas. I mean, let's be honest, unfortunately there are too many to count when it comes to worthy causes. Here in Australia, overseas, you don't have to go far to find uh, someone who needs our help. How did you end up, I suppose, pouring so much time and energy and passion uh, into these uh, causes in places like India and Nepal? Well, I felt it was my obligation as a designer. Um, Every time I went there for projects or the manufacture of goods, it never sat well with me in the design industry working on high-end homes and commercial spaces that we'd purchase pieces or sell them for, say, ten, twenty, five thousand dollars $5,000 down to that, and then the artisans were living in poverty. So for me, similar to the fashion industry, um, they it, it was, the, it was a, an ugly side of design and... For a while, I didn't want a part of it. How did you 
still though, you know, you come to, to spend so much of your time and energy there. Tell me about the first time you went there and, and, and what you saw. Um, well, I left, you probably can tell that I have a New Zealand accent. I left New Zealand when I was 21 and yep. um, worked in Japan and then went on to London um, working. So reasonably affluent countries, but you would see walking home from work at night, I'd be walking over people, or past people living on the street, and it always um, made me uncomfortable and I never felt that giving someone some spare change was actually helping anybody and there was a loss of dignity associated with that. So living in London, then from London I went back to New Zealand and then from New Zealand, um, obviously working in design, went then to Germany, went to Ibiza, travelled a lot, Morocco, India, Egypt, all over the world um, and the in developing, undeveloped countries, there's horrific poverty and it never sat with me. How can these pieces be so beautiful in beautiful homes yet have such sadness attached to them? So I was no, I, I talked about it and thought about it and I'm one, always one of those people that you, I can't talk about it and not do it, so I just mm. decided I was going to do it. And, and we moved to Perth in 2008. So that was my opportunity. Well, let's fast forward to that then. What what brought you to Perth? I know that's where your brand, Leo and Lotus, uh, got its start and got its name. But of all the pl- – I mean, you've just reeled off some of the most exotic locations uh, in the world there. Um, and then you've come to one of the most isolated places uh, on earth and, and set your roots here. How did that come about? Well, with isolation comes great beauty as well. It was actually my husband's fault. Um, (laughs) We had four children and I had completely burnt myself out work-wise. And this was a stage where I was really uh, questioning um, could I keep doing design. Um, So we decided to move to Perth. He had a job. GFC 2008, everything collapsed. The job collapsed. We were living (laughs) on a farm with mangoes, macadamias, kangaroos, um, racehorse lizards in the kitchen. So it was kitchen. It was quite wild. So we needed to get tough. Um, I certainly got tough, being a good Kiwi girl originally from the bottom of the North Island. And I thought, well, now is the time. We're going to start. So I found some, there's some very clever people in Perth, mm. creative people, who I designed pieces, asked them to make them. So I had my samples, then I researched, and I had a bit of knowledge from my travel, um, the fair trade companies that I knew and trusted, because there is, even within fair trade, there's corruption, there's corruption everywhere, everyone makes money, and when people face adversity, their morals always drop to survive, so I had a background in knowing where to look, so I had my samples made by people made in, in Perth, and sent them just sent them out and rang people and waited and emailed and harassed and said, because normally with fair trade, you make a thousand pieces and you may pay a dollar a piece still, but you need a thousand. They make their money in quantities. But I was um, mid to high end in my design, so I could only have one or two pieces made Mm. and they were expensive. And also you've got to understand these artisans had never worked in high quality before. They were used to churning it out. Um, So that's why I needed samples, because I had to teach them what was expected. 
that they were quite capable of doing because their um, skill runs generations through their family. It's in their blood. They know how to do it. So it's about respecting human craftsmanship as well as human life. Okay. So, and that's how I could get back into design. So when you're in Perth and you're sourcing these artisans for, uh, you know, one or two off pieces, were they local designers or local manufacturers that you were seeking out here? Uh, they were. Um, I can't actually remember the name of a shop. It was a craft shop in Subiaco. Yep. And they had, I, I cornered them. There are a few that I'd go into, but... When they sold knitting needles and had sewing machines, I decided that they would know people who can craft or are working from home. And I had to find a beader. Um, but there's a lot of people, they work from home. There's lov- lovely skill and, and also a lot of mental health healing in doing these things. I also found a, um, I rang the Refugee Society in Perth and found a family um, because I knew you had a lot of refugees from Sierra Leone and Africa, and beading comes from Sierra Leone, these wonderful beaders in Africa. So I rang them and asked if anyone would be prepared to make, could I go and meet a family? They gave me some numbers, and then I drove out and knocked on people's doors and asked them if they could make things for me. And at first I was always turned away, and they were a little bit thought, you know, what's this? skinny white lady standing in our front door for and I remember telling a friend once that I was going out and she said well you need to ring me that you're all right on the way home of course I was going to be but there's always that fear attached to things and I knew the skill was there and I thought we could tell stories and um, teach people about all the wonderful people in your community that have incredible ancient skill that we use in design and we need in design and we need to preserve it what was the sort of reaction you got from, you know, particularly African refugees that you've come into contact with here in Perth? I mean, you, you must have formed some some fairly special and unique friendships with some of these people. Yes, yes, they did. Uh, we did. And they probably found me a little bit annoying at first. <laughs> and it was, well, our cultures are completely different. Mm. But, you know, I'd rock up at their house, offer to look after their children invite them to our house for dinner and it was it was fun it was good you know we were we were new to Perth as well they were new to Perth so um and I had a I had people who clients that I was selling to and they had a wonderful skill and it was important that we showed it we made magnificent pieces we made this beautiful um beaded curtain tie backs and I remember um, we beaded at the time. Now it's quite um, fashionable to have um, faux horns on your walls, but we beaded faux horns and they were pieces of art and we auctioned them. Um, And we raised money for a family who had lost their son during um, one of the raids on their villages. So we went back. They... Um, and they went back and they, it's, it sounds like a fairy tale, but the, all of these fairy tales happened and they found him and there's many stories like that. Yeah, I bet. We'll hear some more of them right after we take a break. Melanie, if you don't mind. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories. Melanie Strathy is our special guest. We'll be back with more very soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 
inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are hearing the story of Melanie Strasty, founder of Leo and Lotus, which is a homewares and interior design uh, enterprise. Uh, Melanie also donates a huge amount of her time and energy uh, and funds to all sorts of incredibly worthy causes, uh, most of them uh, throughout the uh, India and Nepal region. But you were just saying before we went to a break there, Melanie, some of the incredible places that you've lived all over the world. Um, You've come to Perth then in 2008. You've spent what seems like, from what I can gather, a fair chunk of your time uh, here in Perth, almost a decade. How how did your time here, I suppose, change you? What sort of lasting impressions did you have of your time here in Perth? It grounded me. We um, had led very busy lives coming from Melbourne, and suddenly it was GFC, of course. So we grew, started, had to grow our own vegetables and things were, we built... were that tight, were they? You had to grow your own yes, food. That yes. wasn't out of just hobby, that was necessity. No, well, both hobby and well, I have to make necessity fun, otherwise, I, it annoys me. <laughs> so I turned it into a fun thing. Um, but it was also, I decided to start Leo and Lotus, which meant I was going to have no income. We were in GSC. My husband had lost his job, but I thought, well, that's not an excuse. These people, the artisans that I promised we were going to do these things for, it's a matter of life and death. We still have a roof. We can, we have uh, food. We have four healthy children um, because time is a little bit tough financially as well. That's when you get tougher, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. Tell me then about the first time you went to India and Nepal and saw things in those countries that made you really prioritise helping particularly young women in those countries. Well, the first trip, I already had a lot of experience because I'd um, done a bit of furniture design in Vietnam. So I knew what I was prepared for. But the reason I went to Nepal first was because when I sent those samples out, the Nepalese were the ones that came back and said, yes, we're going to do it. It doesn't matter if you only need two, we're going to do it. Because Nepal is landlocked, so they just, anything, they're, mm. they're survivors. Um, so I, and the network that I found was the Mahaguthi, who were um, started by Gandhi. And he had established an, an ashram with Tulsi Miha for the abandoned and destitute. I'm not sure if you've heard of Dalit or um, the Untouchables. Mm-hmm. So the Untouchables are girls who are considered bad luck, whether they have just born into horrific poverty, no education, um, or a partner has died. So often these girls, they were married 12, 13 married to maybe their husband is 50 or 60, he died. So then they are considered bad luck. So no one wants to have anything to do with them. They must wear white. So I went into an ashram where these girls were being taught skills to survive by Mahaguthi, um, which is pattern cutting, sewing, knitting, uh, pottery, uh, weaving, and decided to take it on. Um, because they were allowed to be in the ashram till they their skills were strong enough that they thought they could live on the street, but then they were released to go and live on the street. 
So the, our first project with Leon Lotus was to buy every girl in the ashram a sewing machine so that when they left, they had not only the skills to survive, but equipment to establish their own business. Because as soon as you give a young girl who has faced horrific poverty, you give her a little bit of education, you give her opportunity, she will run. And these women are strong. And if you speak about inspirational humans, these are the ones that really touch my soul. Incredible power in these girls. So they were our first project. Amazing. And yet I think so many people here probably are vaguely aware of the plight of some people there, but Mm. without having seen it with their own eyes, um, they probably can't fully appreciate it. And what was wonderful as well, their laughter and the the naughtiness and the questions that they'd asked me through a translator was good. Just like normal girls, just the same. Yeah. It's hard to believe that these things still happen in in 2021, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we hear of occasional news stories and one recently where uh, hundreds of young girls were taken in Nigeria. That seems to be a place we do hear about from time to time. But um, the sex slave industry and and women just being discarded in the way that you've just described uh, is obviously not limited to a place like Nigeria. It's widespread, isn't it? Yes, we uh, now sponsor another ashram in Kathmandu that uh, are for deaf, mute, um, prepubescent and pubescent girls because these girls can't scream. They are a glowing beacon of light for traffickers. Yeah. So they are found. Um, sometimes they're recommended through villages because when families live, live in poverty and they have a daughter and they're struggling to survive and they have a deaf-mute child born to them. Um, And there's a high deaf-mute problem in Nepal. Uh, They'll be left on the street. And we've got people in the ash, girls in the ashram, they don't know where they've come from. They don't know their name. They don't know how old they are. They don't know when they're born. They're just abandoned and they're survived. And then they're bought. Sometimes um, there are two there at the moment who have um, bought from the airport. And, oh, my goodness, you just give them an inch. They're, they're, they're learning sign language, they're reading, they're communicating, they're learning that rape is a crime. They, and the quality, once, once you teach them, the quality of their work is immaculate. Mm. So we can sell their product. We can sell it. And we also, but it's also with that, we design it. They need to be taught how to do these things because we did a range of bed linen, um, the most incredible bamboo sheeting, which is all organic because you know, bamboo doesn't need pesticides. It's naturally um, tolerant, intolerant of tolerance, sorry, of um, um, pests. So you don't, it's an organic product. And we manufactured sheets and the girls made them. We embroidered the edges we had scatter kindness embroidered on the edges of the pillowcases and we sold them into high-end homes. Now, these girls, I had to teach them what sheets were because they'd never slept on a bed with sheets. Wow. But they learn. They learn and their work is, is, is wonderful. So um, where that ashram, ashram is doing quite well at the moment. During COVID, it was, it's been pretty rough, of course, but we're getting through it. They, they, no one feels sorry for themselves. You just find an, another opportunity. It must be incredibly humbling uh, doing mm. what you do. Yes. I still don't feel as I work, though. Mm. 
Back. Can I ask, these women, without the help of someone like you, what becomes of them? Who who buys these sex slaves? How is this still such a big industry? Well, they're, often they're smuggled into India um, and then they disappear, to, to, to be honest. To where, though? To where? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, to the western, to rich countries, or yes, yeah, yes, rich countries. But there's also um, there's slavery in India. There's slavery, um, and I've got to be very careful because I don't want to. I the the beauty of Leon Lotus is we just go under the radar. We find people, we educate them, we teach them a skill to survive. Um, they go out and build a business. We'll buy their product. I can't, I made a very um, big decision that I was never going to be involved or buy into politics or making comments on corruption because corruption happens everywhere. Yeah. I'm just going to, we just find the good people and all the Leon Lotus houses are beautiful. Um, They are mid to high end, but there is always kindness attached to them. Mm. So if you um, walk into a Leon Lotus home, you will know that their um, girls have been taken off the street through that home. And that's the balance. We're yeah. not feeling sorry for people. We just are just empowering them. Empowering. And it is, I feel, it's my obligation. I work in this industry. It's my obligation. I'm not turning a blind eye to it. If you don't mind me asking, you know, if you get a high end piece that is sold for a a good price here in Australia to someone who's got money, how does the sale price then go back and, and help the person who's made it in India or Nepal or wherever they may be? It, um, can you tell me a little bit about the yeah, it's, about the line you know, down it's, the chain there? It's very, very simple, like very simple. The piece example, we made a piece called Peacocks and Gold Dust, which was a console unit for a dining room. It um, had windows that were carved by a carver in Nepal. It was finished by a craftsman in Perth because you've got to, you can only take certain amounts through um, into Australia because you've got fumigation and all of these things. And then it arrives, I finished with a hand painting it by gold leafing edges of it. Um, the landed price I think was about, this is a few years ago, about 4000 roughly 4000 mm-hmm. sold it to the client this is the landed price for it i'm selling it to you for 2500 if it was a, uh, sorry 6500 so you've got a 2500 dollar margin in there that 2500 dollar margin is going to go and buy um, at that stage i think we bought 30 or 40 sewing machines that's what we're doing and i just send it over i actually use western union because at the moment they are the quickest and fastest. Mm-hmm. And these are your, you've bought this piece and those, these are the sewing machines that you've bought and these are the girls they're going to. It's very simple. And what, what sort of a response do you get from the people who are buying these things? Well, before, and it's, it's important too because I don't want my clients to feel sorry or feel bad or feel guilty because there's nothing to feel guilty about having a beautiful, beautiful home and working hard. I mean, I love design, but when um, I price a job, because I'll be um, designing their home, as part of the contract, I say that my fee will be donated, 100% of my fee will be donated to um, activities in Nepal or India. 
and then I um, suggest furniture for them. They buy what they like. Um, they bought this piece, pay for it. Thank you very much. It's in the home. By the way, you bought these sewing machines. Mm. And uh, do it because I don't want guilt or obligation associated with it. No, but awareness and understanding and appreciation is is a good byproduct too of the transaction, isn't it? Yes, and how much more beautiful is a piece when it has kindness attached to it? Yeah, yeah. It must be an incredible way to transact with people. Yes, yes, yeah. I do. I love it. Well, it's, it gives me opportunity to be creative as well because yeah, um, every piece has a story and on the back of pieces that we create, I'll um, have engraved brass plaques of the artisan's name in it. Melanie, we have to take another quick break, but I'm keen to hear more of your story right after that. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are hearing the inspiring story of Melanie Strasty, who's uh, based in Melbourne these days, uh, a Kiwi by origin, but spent a long time based here in Perth and launched her business, which is helping to change lives in developing parts of the world. Melanie, a lot of people have you know great intentions. They say all the right things. Um, you know, they come across as being educated, informed, and aware. Um, but few people really walk the walk in the way that you do. I'm wondering where that's come from. Where did this sense of, uh, of, of very deeply ingrained social justice come from? Tell me about, I don't know, uh, Melanie growing up in the, uh, in the North Island of New Zealand. It, you know, can you trace it back to anything? Um, it's, I think I've always been a speaker of truth and much to my parents' horror, I had a very normal childhood school teachers, uh, growing up in the Wairapa, Greytown in the bottom of the North Island, small town. Um, um, so I always owned up to the naughty things. I remember one, um, my father was a deputy principal at a school and my mother was the teacher there and um, this is a primary school and there had been some very nice graffiti done at one of the other schools that our school used to go into manual classes and I remember dad getting up on the stage and saying someone from this school has done some terrible drawings of some of the teachers at the school at this other school and we're going to find out who it is and if that person is in the, in the audience please put their hand up and I put my hand up and it was his daughter in the audience and, and it was actually you or did you want to take yes. the rap for no for no it was me it was I you. thought well if I'm going to do naughty things I need to own it so I did it <laughs> much to my parents a humiliation so I think truth has always been a thing I also had quite a bad accident when I was nine um, where I was playing ball rush at school where I wasn't supposed to. I don't think you're allowed to play there anymore. What's, what's, what's ball, 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 ball rush, rush or ball rush? Ball rush. It's How does a, that work? Well, it's normally the boys that play it because it's quite rough and you have a team on each side of the field and one person has to run across and you can grab that person and stop them any way you want. Yeah. So I decided to play it and I was the one running across. And I ruptured my spleen. Oh, wow. And 
I was taken to a local hospital. No one knew what was wrong with me. I just had had a sore shoulder and I was obviously going (laughs) grey and had um, tubes and drips and all of these things Um, and they didn't know what was wrong with me. And then they finally got a machine up from Wellington and I didn't realise the enormity because I was only nine years old. Um, I thought I was going home the next day because I didn't like being in hospital and attached to all these things. And they sent this this machine up from Wellington and I remember standing in there and my whole side was black because I'd been bleeding internally for about five days. Wow. Um, So I was taken, they had to get a surgeon um, quickly and get me in and I had no parents or anyone around me because mum and dad were at school and had this um, emergency, possibly maybe a little panic surgery where they hadn't had this before. And, um, yes, so I was quite sick after that. But also with the surgery, it was a wee bit of a butcher. um, And I had to have more surgery after that, um, just with complications and things. So I think from um, that young age, I always became very grateful, very grateful for everything. And I used to, I remember, so that's at the age of nine, I'd put my feet on the floor getting out of bed and thinking how cool it was that I could feel my feet on the floor Mm. and I could stand up and my day needed to have um, purpose. I wasn't just going to live this life. Maybe it stemmed from there. I don't know. That's a a big and and heavy life lesson to learn at such a young age. Yes, but uh, children are extremely resilient and you Mm. don't realise the enormity of it till you've got children of your own and you think, oh my goodness. Yeah. What about the design flair? Where did that come from? Um, my father's side of the family are very creative. This, <laughs> he, my dad being a school principal, was also an actor. He became a teacher, which I think a lot of actors do when they don't quite make it, <laughs> they become school teachers. A, that is a familiar story, <laughs> actually, yes. Um, so our school holidays, um, he used to travel uh, doing, he was Roderick the Wacky Wizard. Um, he was a he was a puppeteer. He was a ringmaster in the circus. My sister used to ride the elephant Dumbo, and I was a clown because I was the littlest boy-looking child. So I always got the clown and cleaning out the horses and all that kind of stuff. So that's our background. And his mum was a wonderful artist. She taught um, art drawing, life drawing through a correspondence school under the uh, under a man's name. Because this was in the this was during the war, so women weren't doing things like that. Mm. Yeah, so there's lots of art in our background. Yeah, and obviously your um, interior design work has taken you all over the world. Um, yes. And you you know you're, you're someone who likes to to travel, if not for pleasure, then at least to go and um, and and visit these uh, places that you've done so much work in recently, India and Nepal. Um, COVID. How did that uh, scupper your schedule? Um, I just found a new way of working and I fitted out a lodge actually in Melbourne during COVID, stuck in it because I had to do quarantine in New Zealand. Um, I found a lot of furniture online, but it is because of the contacts. So I'd ring people and we'd FaceTime and I'd be shown through their showrooms or I'd go through auctions, I'd be online. And I be just be through experience. I know you can tell um, the quality of things. So work is busy. People aren't travelling. Um, 
so you just do it, find a different way of doing it. Mm. Are you looking forward to getting back on a plane again, though? I'm nervous about going back to be to Nepal, to be honest, um, because I don't have a spleen. Um, every time I would go into these countries, my mother, of course, would worry, and I have 5,000 immunizations of, against mm. everything. Um, but the, you're still incredibly vulnerable. But I will go back. I'll go yeah. back. I'll just wear a mask and hand sanitizer. I always, in Nepal, I'm tall. I'm five foot ten and a bit, and I'm, so I'd stand out anyway. You're a giant there. <laughs> I'm a giant. <laughs> Once there was, I was in Kathmandu, and there, um, they for a while, they had quite a few riots. It was really unstable with the mouse and the government changeover, and there was a riot happening, and I was in the square, and... It was funny. That's the benefit of being tall and white in Nepal. Suddenly these people came running out to me and they grabbed me and I was put in a taxi because there were people with guns coming and they thought that I'd be sticking out and too obvious. Can't hide. So they took me out. Yeah. Um, and obviously you have a, a greater awareness than, than most of the sorts of uh, injustices that are going on around the world. India and Nepal have been a focus of your attention recently but are there other parts of the world that you would like to spend more time and energy focusing on? Um, I'm working a bit in Morocco at the moment with a lady there's a huge injustices but wonderful art so mm. when you're creative yeah. you just keep going there's therapy in there so Morocco will go back there I did do a wee bit of work there um, in the early to mid 2000s so we've been doing some more work there remotely from those contacts we'll go back there um but everywhere everywhere yeah. you know humans survive do you everywhere. do you sleep well at night knowing all of the all of what you know and having seen what you've seen um the people well I, I suppose what i'm asking is is it hard to switch off because you must want to be in so many places all the time uh, helping as many people as you can. Is it hard to switch off from that? When I first was exposed to more of it, and I did cry a lot, mm. I would go into the ashram, um, several ashrams, all the schools, because we work in schools as well for street children. Um, I would be very happy and jolly and talk to the children and have all these conversations and then hop in the car and bawl. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, because there's a lot you can't help. When we were in India... 2019, um, we went to a school, a remote school, um, and we were talking to the children, and one of the girls piped up, and because I said, "What can we do?" Because I obviously, there's, where do you start? Because the mm. poverty is horrific. Uh, she asked if we could build a fence because they have nowhere to go to the toilet and people see them walk into the school and they're girls and they're afraid. Gosh. So we built a fence, a wall, a brick wall. Um, so those things really hurt. Um, just the fact that we need to do that, but, you know, we get a little bit tougher. And, and then sometimes I can't hear from people again. Like yeah. they get lost and they're gone. Yeah. But the wonderful thing through that is these humans, people, girls are incredibly resilient. They're not victims. They don't whinge. They just get on with it yep. and they will find a way. I suppose they have to be, don't they, to survive. Mm. Yep. They will. And they love and they're very grateful. They love living. They're very yep. grateful for everything. Yep. Um, we need to take a, another break, Melanie. But after that, I want to hear about uh, some of your future 
uh, endeavours closer to home. This is uh, Inspiring Stories. Melanie Strathy is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Melanie Strathy, the driving force behind uh, an interior design uh, social enterprise, Leo and Lotus. Uh, that's not two people. That is just one person who is the, the founder and, uh, and driving force behind that. And she is our special guest on this episode uh, of Inspiring Stories. Uh, Melanie, you've talked a lot about, about the, uh, the incredible adventures overseas and how you've been able to use design as a as a vehicle to reach these people and to empower them. You must see, though, a lot of issues right on your doorstep here in Australia. It's unfortunate in, in a fairly affluent Western country such as ours, we do still have dire poverty, uh, women particularly disadvantaged, uh, right on your doorstep. Um, are you at all um, planning to try to tackle uh, these issues here closer to home or yes. do you feel like in a Western country we should be able to look after those things? You've got to do it in a country that's not as well off as our own. Uh, no, not at all. It's all about opportunity. As soon as you give someone opportunity who has faced adversity, they will grab it and run. Um, I was in a horrifically abusive relationship for a period of my life, so I deeply understand what it is like to get yourself back up out of the gutter and work and earn and uh, raise your children. Um, it has, well, of course we are educated here so we have the opportunity to find work but when you have to run and find somewhere to live, it's very difficult to have a shower and present well for a job interview. Mm. So the next project um, we are going to do, and it's all about the skill that I have, so that's why I feel I've got this obligation um, with, I can design ha homes uh, very well. Um, I know a lot of architects, I know a lot of builders, so I would like to design and build mobile tiny homes that can be loaned to women or families who have to escape a situation to, to get themselves on their feet um, till they get a job and establish enough income to go and find a rental property and because it's about dignity. Mm. We, there's handing money to people and living off it is not making lives better. Handing money and supporting people to empower them and give them the confidence to go past and um, leave behind where they've come from. That's how it makes things better. So I'd like to build tiny mobile homes where these women or men with children um, can live where it's safe for a period of time. And I, I think I can build them for about thirty-seven to 40000 a home. Um, so we'll continue with our work, um, Nepal, India, Morocco, we're going to start, and these tiny homes I'm going to build here. So <laughs> it's a matter of all the work. Oh Not my an God. insignificant project you've got on your hands there. Yeah, I'm going to do Melanie. it though. And, I... and who supports you in that, in that sort of venture? I mean, again, it, it sounds like something that the government should be doing with our, our tax dollars. 
uh, does it frustrate you that there is this gap in in the support network here in a in a rich country like ours? No, it doesn't because um, I think that there are the government initiatives. I've always just never relied on anything, and I just feel as though I just got to go and do it myself. Yeah. And I'm I'm doing it. I have the ability to earn. I have a skill of design. I have um, wonderful projects, design projects. So, and we made the decision in GFC um, that we could, <laughs> my poor husband, that we could survive. And our children are slowly growing up, and one of them is left, and there's three others to go. So we'll be all right. One down, three to go. Yeah, three to go. <laughs> um, I'll just keep earning. We'll keep doing this, and it's yep. a family project, and the children will be involved. <laughs> I've told Whether them. Whether they like that it or not. <laughs> that's right. One of them. We've got one out of four. We might get one. Um, so we just keep doing it. Tell us it's about important. Leo and Lotus, the future of it. And if people want to support you and, and find out what it is that you do and what you've got to to sell. So it's leoandlotus.com. Um, we're not a charity. We're um, a, an interior design homewares brand. All All profits go to all of the projects that I mentioned, um, the children that we support, the ashrams, this new housing, um, mobile tiny homes, all of it, and it will continue to grow. I'll always find something more. Um, everything goes. I don't earn a wage. Um, I do every now and then um, pay consultants to come in and help me, but 100% of the profit goes back and that's an obligation. I just feel as though it's mm. my obligation. I'm just grateful for, as I said before, putting my feet on the ground every morning yeah. and having two arms. Lucky, my sight, my hearing, and my ability to to design. It's an obligation. Yep, you are a, a truly inspiring member of our community. Thank you so much, Melanie, for sharing your story. We do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. This one... Uh, the inspiring story of Melanie Strathy. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So... We doubled it. Chicken and Maccas, together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.